Welcome back to the FKT Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Candace Burt is an entrepreneur, an ultra runner, a five-time FKT setter, a mom to two teenagers, a five-dog wolf pack, and I think at least a couple of cats. So needless to say, she is one busy woman. Thank you, Candace, for making the time to be on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. It's fun to see kind of our generation of ultra runners getting to do leadership things like you're running this podcast now. And uh, yeah, it's really cool. It's been a long time since we've spoken. Yeah, it has been a few years, but I have really enjoyed following along online and kind of seeing all of the things that you have been up to over the last few years. I was thinking a great way to start since you do wear a lot of hats and juggle a lot of things would maybe be talking to our listeners a little bit about how you maintain a life work balance. Because I think, especially with long distance runners or FKT setters, that takes a huge time commitment. And a lot of us have other commitments too. And I can't think of anybody who has more commitments than you. (laughs) Yeah, it, it does feel like that often. I think interestingly enough, balance is probably something that's difficult to maintain. So I try to prioritize the things that are most important. That means that often FKTs or races will be second to like my children's schedules or other things like around the household or the business. But that being said, Uh, I've learned to kind of schedule my fun runs and those kind of things during times when I know I'm going to have enough time, like mentally and physically to really put everything into those efforts. Because physical efforts require so much of you that if half your mind is with your kids and you're wondering how they're doing or you get homesick, then it can be really hard to mentally continue. So I think kind of prioritizing what times of the year that I expect I'll have more of that space to explore. But I definitely have had, it feels like less time in the last few years to kind of do that kind of thing. But I've chosen more carefully to the adventures that I've done and just really had a blast doing them, whether it's the Tahoe Rim Trail or my continued attempts at the Arizona Trail. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that's a really valuable lesson in mindset to have. I think sometimes we think that everything has to be balanced perfectly, and it's not about necessarily balancing everything perfectly, but it's about understanding your priorities and scheduling so that you get a good amount of time. Like You can't completely neglect yourself and the things that make you feel fulfilled, but you also can't only do that <laughs> and neglect everything else. So it is important to make sure that you're scheduling that. I definitely think that the quantity over quality is probably not the way to go, especially when you are picking big objectives. Like you mentioned, your Tahoe Rim and Arizona Trail, those are big objectives. They take a lot of planning and also a lot of time and execution and training. Yeah, a lot of times it ends up being a learning process too, where you kind of think you're prepared and then you hit the trail. And I'm sure with all your experience doing long trails, one small mistake can kind of snowball into something really major. And even if it's not something that will physically kill you, like it could be last year when I ran the Arizona Trail, I got blisters everywhere. And Mm -hmm. I was like, what is happening? I never get blisters, but I had changed all these other dynamics that wouldn't normally come into play if I'm just running on my daily runs. And I hadn't taken into account like all the things that would be different for the through hike doing like 40, 50 miles a day. I should have trained with a heavier pack and I should have 
experimented with different kinds of socks and bigger shoes. And so it was like, I was able to take what I learned the hard way last year with all the blisters and then some feedback I'd gotten from other through hikers to change up my socks, change up my shoes. And I didn't get any blisters this mm -hmm. year. So, I mean, those kind of things can just destroy you mentally and physically. So yeah, it's definitely important to kind of prioritize and learn from those seemingly small mistakes, but they're <laughs> right. such a huge mistake not to train, you know, right. like the effort you're trying to go for. I, I call that trail dominoes, the innocuous little thing. And that just sets it all off. <laughs> yeah. It's like it triggers that cascade. And then you're starting to think, huh, am I going to be able to make it? And right. that's like, oh no, you've gone down that road. It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting, and I was when I was like reading a little bit about your many, how many Arizona trail attempts have you made actually? Three where I've actually hit the trail and <laughs> had one where I was, so in 2019, I was going to go out and do the Arizona trail, but I did the Hurt 100 and then I followed mm -hmm. it up with Delirious West 200 miler thinking, oh, these will be great training for you know, doing the Arizona trail and I got injured. Okay. So I had to skip it that year, but it kind of feels like it's been four years, you know? Right. And one thing, I mean, a lot of people would say, well, how come you haven't nailed it yet? <laughs> but I think, oh, and over the years, my goal kind of changed. I think I thought like speed and time improving something was important to me. Once I got out there, I realized that the pressure of having a certain time goal took away from the experience. And the time wasn't as important to me as having the experience on the trail. So it was kind of a cool shift that I made. It made me less competitive, but it increased my joy of the whole experience. So like this year, I got the furthest I've gotten and I went 400 miles, but I kind of had limited time due to family issues. And so I'm going to finish the other 400 in the heat of the summer, but I'll probably <laughs> do a lot, lots of hiking at night. So yeah. Yeah place water and hike at night. But that way I can just be like, okay, I've done the whole trail and I have that full kind of experience. Totally. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess if you made it 400 miles, you're up on the Muggy and Rim and North. So it'll be a little cooler. cooler. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it'll be too bad. Right. And I live in Tucson now, so it'll be a lot cooler than the running that I do here. So I think it'll, yeah, I'll, I'll be fine. I'll place water if I have to before yeah. I get out there. But I did want to add that part of the thing is like each year I kind of learned things I needed to know to get the 400 miles that I went this year. Cause I went from being like a runner to an ultra runner and then really realizing that to do the trail, I needed to learn a lot of the basics of like through hiking. And that took last year and this year, but I absolutely love the idea of through hiking. And I kind of felt like I would miss the social aspect if I tried to push it any more than I did because I kind of liked, you know, to talk to people and I didn't really have time to spend in towns much. So it would be kind of fun for the second half if I can take a little bit more time to enjoy myself. Yeah, the community aspect of through hiking is really I mean, it's similar to the community aspect in ultra running, except you're all out there for like a much longer period of time, usually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a little more laid back too. ultra runners are like comparatively like the road version of right. runners versus. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is. Through hikers. Yeah. They're, they're definitely a lot more laid back than I think most of the 
trail runners are competing in races nowadays. So yeah, Yeah. it's kind of a, a cool group of people. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was interesting is most of the FKTs you've done have been unsupported or self-supported. And then in 2019, and then in 2020, when you went out to do the Arizona Trail, you chose to go completely supported. And so I was interested in why you chose to change this modality that's obviously worked for you really well. And then this year, you're out there in a self-supported manner. So kind of maybe just interested in why you chose those different ways to go after it. You know, in 2019, 2020, I had at least the foresight to kind of know that if I wanted to do over 50 miles a day, I was probably going to be better off with a crew. But I went back and forth a lot, actually. And that wouldn't show, you know, in the attempt, but I ultimately decided to do it with crew early on. And then after that year, I knew that I kind of wanted it to just be my own thing. And so I went back to a little more of my way of doing things instead of the way I thought I should do it to do it as fast as I could. And I think that like the Arizona trail for me definitely illustrates my progression into like doing things more for myself than outside um, external reasons. It's taken me a lot of years to get to that point, but I think that especially in the last like two to three years, I've found that balance and it's allowed me to really delve into my reasoning for why I do it. Cause I think that for a while when I was running and racing ultras, I was like, well, I know I can do the distance, but it's difficult maybe to finish a race when you know you can do the distance and you're more externally motivated. And then let's say as an elite runner, you're now getting passed and you're having like a bad section. That's when I think that that external motivation, it's like, oh, I might as well drop. And so I didn't want to be that runner. I knew that there was more to racing and ultras and trail exploration than just, you know, place or time. And so I kind of found that through the exploration of like the constant (laughs) trying to finish the whole Arizona trail and then realizing like, oh, it's okay to not do it all at once for me. And maybe next year I can get myself enough time to kind of make it a more relaxed endeavor. That's what my gut tells me to do. And it's taken many years to get to that point of allowing myself to actually find some pleasure in the experience, not just the ultra mentality of push, 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 go, 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 pain and suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really great lesson to learn about yourself and also just to accept that. I think there's people who maybe know that they're being externally motivated and they're not really enjoying it as much, but they continue to do it because they can't accept the lesson that's there asking for that attention. I know for me, you know, I was really into like the 100 mile distance for a long time. And then in my head, I was like, I must run a sub 24. And I did. And then I sort of just lost all interest in running 100 miles ever again, because like, in my head, that was the thing I needed to achieve, I guess, to make myself feel okay with my performance as an ultra runner. And I, I mean, there's a few races, I'm, I'm interested in running the course, but I just haven't felt that drive. And it's been more about doing things that are fulfilling to me. So I I totally understand that evolution and that growth. Because, you know, if you're not in the end doing something for yourself, it really becomes unsustainable. Absolutely. And and I think that's why we see so many great runners and well, really runners of all different abilities come and go in ultra running, because you can't fake it in that long of a sport. It's going to just be miserable if if you don't have some passion and love behind it and racing. I think, especially like you were saying hundred mile distance, I think 
is really hard because you have to push so much within that. It's a long time period. And that's kind of what I like too about the 200 mile distance is that it gives you kind of this breathing space. And maybe it's because they're still so new and we aren't seeing kind of as high a competition as we will in the future. But I do think that when you start adding that much distance on, it becomes 200 miles to me is kind of a different sport than ultra even. And I see a lot of older ultra runners get into 200s because they're like, this is what we used to do. You know, it was kind of like a big group of friends who would go out and race back in the day. I think ultra is kind of split into different roads. You know, there's kind of the highly competitive direction UTMB Western States is going. And that's really cool that we have that in the sport. But I think it's also cool to see like we have the adventure style races as well, where people can run them and not feel like that same pressure of time and competition and short cutoff times. So it plays more to like middle and back of the pack to just be able to kind of do their thing (laughs) and have more fun, eat lots of food. Yeah, it is cool to see this growth and this like variety of options and things that cater to a lot of different types of runner and people who are looking for different things from you know, quote unquote competing. The vast majority of people who sign up for a race don't intend to place in that race, (laughs) you know? So it's like nice to have things where that isn't necessarily the focus. It is about going out and having an experience. And I'm very intrigued by the 200 mile distance because to me, it's what you're saying. Like it's not as, I mean, hundreds are really hard, but you can still compete at them. But like a 200 miler is far more like a journey. And I think it has a lot akin to it with FKTs where it's, it's a long process And of course, you're ultimately you reach the finish, but it's all that stuff that happens in between that seems like it would be what you'd sign up for. Yeah, for sure. And it kind of forces you to slow down a bit so that you can survive the second half of the race. And the people that go out really fast in the start tend to suffer the consequences later, even more so. It's exponential compared to a 50 mile or 100 mile, for sure. So it is cool to see how different that is and kind of the interesting type of runners that those adventures attract too. Like every time I hear a story of a different runner who's signed up like for one of my 200s, I'm surprised kind of at what they've been through. And yeah, it's wild. There's all kinds like Jackie, who just, who's an amputee runner who just did the hundred marathons in hundred days. She is in the Moab 240 and she's going to, attempt to run it again with being an amputee. So it'll be kind of cool considering like how technical that race is. Right. Um, Yeah. It's a cool challenge. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. I know that you currently have the triple crown of 200s and I know you've been posting on social media about an upcoming soon to be fourth. I don't know if it's something you can talk a little bit about or want to tease our listeners a little bit about today, or is that still super hush hush? (laughs) It's not hush hush enough to not talk about. I can't help myself in terms of sharing some of the details. Ever since I fell in love with the Arizona Trail, when I hit it back in 2020, my favorite part was Saguaro National Park, you know, going up Micah Mountain. It's so cool too that you know all the trails, so you understand those parts. But yeah, I went up Micah Mountain and the saguaro cactus, um, kind of how lush it was even for a desert. So that kind of got my brain thinking and was really the reason why I moved down here because I fell in love with the climate and the 
terrain and knew that it would be an amazing location for a 200 mile race. Because for me, it's like, I don't want to put on a race like that just anywhere. You know, it's Mm -hmm. so much work and people typically will travel from all over the world. So you want it to be something like truly unique. And I feel like the three 200s I have are that they fulfill being very unique, non-repetitive courses. And so what I'm working on right now will be a point to point that will feature a few different mountain ranges, but kind of finish up through the Catalinas and then down into the city of Tucson. Permitting will kind of, it's challenging like any 200 would be, but there's a lot of national park and wilderness and you got to find trails that are just as cool as that, but Mm -hmm. aren't in those kind of designations. So there's definitely challenges as a race that are tough to overcome. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we get permission on those. I don't know what year it will be like done at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Because I've been working on it. People don't realize this with like the 200 mile races, like you can work on them for years and then finally be able to present it. So there's kind of a lot of work that goes in before it's even live and something you could sign up for. But yeah, I definitely, now that I live here, have kind of the ability to go out and really scout. I was actually out last week. I had a friend visiting. We got out and scouted some of the Mount Lemon sections. So yeah, yeah, I saw some of those pictures. And I was like, Ooh, this looks really nice. Because when you first announced you're going to be doing a 200 in Tucson, all I could think of was the loop around Tucson. And I was like, that? (laughs) No, I don't think that would be very. So then I saw your scoping out pictures. And I was just like, Oh, no, this is mountainous. This looks wonderful. So I'm really as much trail as possible. I mean, the goal is if possible to only have it be trail, but the finish, like for the Bigfoot 200, we have to come in on road for the finish. And with this, it'll be similar, but we're hoping to use mostly bike paths like Mm -hmm. the loop that are separate to finish at the finish location. But most of it, like 90% should be trail only. That'll be amazing. I think that people underestimate Arizona a lot. People who haven't spent time there. And it's so incredibly varied and beautiful, and especially down in the Sky Islands, like where you're planning to put this race on. Yeah, Arizona just has so much to offer. So I'm, I'm really excited. I know you'll put together a really cool route. Yeah, yeah. The Sonoran Desert down here, it, like the plants and the animals that live in that desert are really only in this area of the world. And that's kind of some of the attraction that I think that this particular race will have like you look at you know the saguaro cactuses that are they can be hundreds of feet tall they don't even get their first arm until they're like 75 to 100 years old and so you'll see these uh huge cactus that have like crazy numbers of arms all over and you think like how old is this it's amazing and it's growing in this incredible incredibly harsh desert environment but we also get some of the most um, rain of different, you know, deserts. We get two seasons of rain and that's unique for desert climates. Yeah, it is. Actually, I hadn't thought about it, but you do. You have the winter rains and the and then summer monsoons both. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. We get, yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> we get all, all those rains. Well. <laughs> yeah, you just never know, but yeah. Hopefully. That's one of the interesting things, like going back to your most recent Arizona Trail attempt. You know, I think that most people just think of Arizona as hot and dry. And I know you were posting about it on Instagram and we even communicated a little. It seems like 
when you were going up into the high mountains, you had an encounter with a snowstorm and it seemed like it was quite the thing. And I'd love it if you could share kind of the story of that with our listeners. Wow. Yeah. The, you just, it's amazing. Like you really need to be prepared for everything when you do a long FKT or a long trail. And I think that's a good lesson. Hopefully all the listeners can kind of pick up. So I was grateful that I had rain gear. I had layers, down jacket, gloves, all those kind of things. But I ended up hitting Mount Lemon, which is, I'm pretty sure it's the highest place on the whole Arizona trail because Mount Lemon gets over 9,000 feet and you get up almost to that point. So you're over 8,000 feet. And I was still trying to hit like 45, 50 miles a day at that point. I think it's like day going on day four. And you have the really hard combination. I heard you talking about this too, the Micah Mountain, Mount Lemon combo. So I was mostly up Micah Mountain in the morning of that day. And I thought, you know what, I, I got to try to get up to Mount Lemon by the end of today. But things drug on and rain hit down low between the mountains. And I didn't really think even about snow at that point. But by the time I got to the base of Mount Lemon, it was like 1am in the morning. And I'm thinking like mileage wise, it's really not that far to Summerhaven, which is at the top of Mount Lemon. I think it was like 13 miles. And I thought, you know what, I'll give myself another three or four hours and I won't get as much sleep, but that's fine. So I started going up Lemon and I suddenly had this thought, like, what if this rain turns to snow? Because, you know, I'm going up 5,000 feet. And lo and behold, it did. And there was <laughs> at the top, I know, go imagine, going up Mount Lemon too, you're using like your hands. You're trying to route find because this is a very steep climb. And there's not really like a specific trail. So you're kind of following cairns through parts. And now everything's covered in a thin layer of snow. The higher I got up, the more, the deeper the snow got so that like, I think it's top 10 miles were, I would estimate somewhere between like four to six inches of snow, no trail, no footprints. And it, the snow is still coming down. So I had my lights on and I was really afraid of stopping. And I just had this feeling like if I stopped for too long, I might kind of get hypothermic at that point because I'd gotten wet and sweaty going up. So I just maintained, I drank zero water and ate zero food for like the next like three plus four hours. And I just like plowed it in to Summerhaven. Wow. <laughs> I arrived at like seven in the morning. I had like snow all over my like hood and my pack. I came through town like, like I just survived some kind of crazy, <laughs> you know, I'm looking around like nobody has any idea what I just went through. Right, <laughs> you know right. that feeling? Yeah. I'm sure you personally, knowing you, Heather, you've been through those where you're just like, whoa, you know, and it, and it, I think that was the moment like that day where I was like, you know, I don't really care about what time I come out with. Like I survived. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I kind of, I kind of took, took it down a notch after that. So I spent the day and the next night in Summerhaven. So I lost time there. And that kind of, mm -hmm. that allowed me though, the mental kind of ability to just be like, okay, I'm going to do what I need to do to get a little bit of sleep and pull it together. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I definitely felt a little traumatized having gone through that. But it was, it was also like one of those moments where you look back at and you're like, ah, oh, that was awesome. You know, <laughs> I almost died. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. I remember being on Instagram, I was following your adventure and I'm seeing you posting these snow photos and I'm like, I know where you are. And the wilderness of rock is no joke. And I went through the wilderness of rock in the dark and it was not snowing. And it was like super hard to find 
and follow the trail. And so I'm just thinking, like, I was very happy to see when you posted that you made it to Summer Haven. Let's just put it that way, because I was just like, Candace, don't die out there, you know? Oh, it's it's so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't have been able to navigate if I hadn't done this one little thing. So it was all, it was like, there were these little things that kind of added up and I did them thankfully. So I got one of those Garmin Phoenix watches right before, you know, before you do a big effort, how you're like, oh, maybe I need this, you know, maybe. I need... <laughs> so I bought the watch uh, at REI because the guy there was like with the big screen and the maps, like it works really well for navigating. And I thought, oh, that would be cool. You know, I've never used my watch for navigating. I always use apps on my phone. So I I had totally last minute downloaded the Arizona Trail maps onto the watch, never used it, which is really stupid. Everybody, if you're listening, like practice these kind of things because it really can kind of be life or death. But I got a little bit of reception as I was climbing Lemon uh, and I my phone was dying and I knew that if I was going to be able to navigate via my watch and I hadn't done it in any other part of the Arizona Trail up till then, that I needed to Google really fast how to pull up the map and keep it visible on my watch. So I did that. And thankfully I had reception and then I was able to just kind of turn my wrist and it would light up and I could look and I was like, okay, still on route. It would show me where I was. I would continue forward. I had to look at my wrist probably every six steps for 10 miles. Yeah. At at night. Cause there was no, you could kind of, sometimes it was like, you could only go straight or kind of down because there were too many trees or bushes, but it was harrowing to navigate and if I hadn't had that, my phone would have died. And I, you know how it is on the trail. Like you only have so much battery power. So thankfully, like that watch allowed me to navigate until it got light in the morning. <laughs> yeah. So like we were talking about the trail dominoes. That's a case where like the dominoes worked in your favor. Like the fact that you were able to it's get true. that. Yeah. And, and I think that having so many years of experience, I kind of knew like, oh, you know, that would be really helpful under certain conditions. And I kind of wish I had practiced with it more, but thankfully it was easy enough to use that. And I've used enough GPS tracking that I kind of figured it out, but you don't want to be figuring out how to use your equipment while it's, you know, pouring snow on you. And the wind was really uh, strong and intense too. Cause I remember getting really angry at it. It was constantly like throwing snow into my eyes. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just remember feeling so mad, like stop. <laughs> yeah. The irrational rage when you're sleep deprived yeah. and doing something hard. Yeah, like like totally raging at nature. Like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so, I think that's one of those things too, where it's like afterward, you know, when you're talking about walking into Summer Haven, you're like, I just survived this thing. And it can feel so I mean, it feels so like raw and traumatic. And but also like I feel for me, like I'm I've become aware as I've gotten older and I've done more things. I start to also like below that, like sort of like trauma of like, oh my God, I just survived this thing. It's this sense of like gratitude for nature, first of all, for letting me survive, but also for like reminding me that I'm fallible and fragile. And I think that a lot of times when you do big things and and you're successful a lot of times and you go out into the backcountry a lot and nothing bad ever happens, you begin to feel this sort of sense of invincibility. And I personally am grateful when I'm reminded that, hey, I'm not invincible and I need to remember to to be careful and to be reverent when I'm out there. Do you ever feel something along that line? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's such a great point is you can get, you can kind of 
think best case scenario, it's one of those things where you just, you just don't know when that moment is going to come or, you know, that where the adventure is going to turn. And so the more prepared that you are all the time, the more ready you'll be for those moments. But yeah, I mean, and, and I think for me too, like, and I had to like compartmentalize like the trauma I felt, it's kind of hard to explain, but like, I didn't want to over dramatize it in my own head too, because I felt like this, like I could have gone there, you know, and I just, I wanted to continue and put those emotions over here for now, but I, you know, I've got other places to go and like, I'll think on it more deeply later. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's kind of one of those things. And, and it's interesting because like the year before, um, I had, stopped at the top of Mount Lemon after having like all these blisters. And then I got a, what was it? It was basically an infection in the back of my mouth. I could feel like in my jaw, I couldn't open and close my jaw. I could wow. barely eat. Yeah. So I got an infection like during, it had kind of developed during the first few days last year. And then between that and the blisters, I was like, uh, I just don't think like it was so much. I couldn't think to like, I didn't have time to go down to town and get antibiotics and then come back up because I had to be back to Washington to take care of my kids within a certain time frame. Okay. So I was like, well, I guess that's it. And it was kind of hard to accept. But then on my way home from that trip, uh, I came upon a crashed car and pulled a guy out. So the car was on fire, like in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was interesting because it was a different kind of like experience of feeling like your life is in danger. You know, and then this year, this year I got to experience that in a different way on Mount Lemon. So I kind of feel like I have like these endless adventures available to me here. <laughs> right. Yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. I actually forgot about that. I remember when you posted about the burning car, that was pretty crazy and definitely very serendipitous that you were there and the right person moment. to be there at that moment to actually take action and save his life. Yeah. It was a pretty crazy end to an FKT attempt. <laughs> Yeah, it was wild. And I think it's interesting because I've gotten to talk to the victim of the car crash now quite a few times on the phone. And it's cool to be able to talk to him about it because we're like the only ones who really understand that moment, you know, mm -hmm. and like desperation. And I don't think he understands it as much as I, I do. Right. Because <laughs> he didn't he didn't have a memory like between when he started to crash and then being pulled out. Um, it's just like blank for him. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was kind of, kind of crazy though, but, but yeah, it's interesting how sometimes you think the adventure is going to be one thing <laughs> and it turns out to be something completely different. Often, often something completely different. Yeah. One of the things um, I was kind of curious about, and this is something very unique to your FKT attempt this year. So now you live in Arizona, you live really close to the AZT. I've hiked toward home on an FKT, but I have never literally walked past my home. Like I've walked <laughs> past where I could hitchhike to my home, like hundred miles. What was that like? Like, was that really hard mentally to be like, well, my house is literally like a mile down there. Like, was that? Yes. Crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think especially because I'll give you a without kind of bringing up the stuff that was going on in, in my family at the time. But I will say that because there were issues going on, it had like planned help for the kids and my dogs. And how I, like you said, in the intro, I have five dogs. So it's like pretty big deal to get the right person. Yeah. And then the childcare as well. So there was kind of a drama that, that happened with all that right before, before I started. And so that left me just kind of feeling not as much availability to like let 
all that go and put myself onto the trail. And so going, going past my home that night, I had two people switching off in their roles of like taking care of the place while I was passing by. And so I was like, I hope everything's going well. (laughs) (laughs) And it would have been nice, you know, to get a shower. But of course, like the way that, as you know, the self-supported works is you can't use anything that's not available to everybody else. So I couldn't go to my house (laughs) and continue. But one of the huge benefits was one of the hardest days, I think, on the whole Arizona Trail. Of course, I haven't done the top 400 miles, but going up Micah Mountain in my head, you know, I kept thinking about how hard that was. But having been able to train on it in advance, I could kind of mentally like consume like the different pieces more easily and I did find myself as I approached the Micah Mountain section, it's basically 15 miles up the mountain and Micah Mountain is 8,600 feet. So it's a big, it's a big climb, as you know. And I had to tell myself, like, don't climb the mountain before you even get there. Because I kept thinking about it and I was like, nope, you're not there yet. You can think about it once you're going up. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of cool to, I really learned that lesson this year of like, okay, one day at a time, one step at a time. Mm -hmm. But my natural inclination, I think, is to kind of let anxiety about those sections (laughs) build Mm -hmm. up and and it drains you. So you have to be a little careful. Yeah, definitely. I think that's like great advice, not just for FKTs, but for life, like don't climb the mountain until you get there. I I love that. (laughs) That's great. I'm going to remind myself of that because I definitely struggle with the anxiety and the overthinking. For me, like when I did my Arizona Trail FKT, it was actually almost good because the only part of it I had ever been on was the Grand Canyon. (laughs) So I couldn't (laughs) climb any mountains until I got to them. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. But did you think about the Grand Canyon? Because that's a hard section. I did kind of, but honestly, I was like, and like, I wanted to get to the Grand Canyon because I went southbound and Mm -hmm. I think it was like really my first full day on the trail because I started in the afternoon. Like I got hit by this like freak snowstorm, not at the level of the one you hiked through. But I mean, I did have a really close call with hypothermia. And I mean, I basically had to drag myself into my tent at like three in the afternoon and get warm. And then I ate dinner and slept for a few hours. And I think I started hiking around one in the morning and it was well below freezing. And all I kept thinking to myself was just get to the Grand Canyon because it's going to be literally 50 degrees warmer. Like if you just get down in there, it's going to be 50 degrees warmer. It was so (laughs) cold. Like I knew a storm could happen, but I had chosen to like go really skimpy on like layers because I didn't want to carry them through the desert where it was going to be warmer. And so... I was very excited to be in the Grand Canyon. And I mean, I was probably halfway out of the Grand Canyon before I was suddenly like, oh gosh, I forgot what a big climb this is. <laughs> Cause I was just so <laughs> desperate to be warm. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge climb. Yeah, and I definitely kind of ran out of steam by about halfway up, but I made it out. Yeah, there's like some trade-off cause there were other parts of the AZT where I think I had wished I had known what I was getting myself into like the Wilderness of Rock, which I also walked through in the, in the night. But yeah, I think overall that not knowing the mountains you're going to climb in advance is probably preferable to me. Well, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I definitely think there's advantages and disadvantages to both. But that being said, like the Arizona Trail, after my first like real physical attempt in 2020, I was like, wow, this is a hard trail. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I really realized like the variety of terrain, how rocky it was and all that, I was like, your time and the other times on that trail, it just blows me away. And I think that's part of why now I'm like, I just don't think I would enjoy myself if I pushed 
as much as it would take to get those records. So kudos to you. Like the records are really incredible. And I wanted to say that, you know, to your face. So I'm glad I got, oh, well, thank you. I'm glad I got to do that. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think oftentimes people will look at records from far and judge, but the truth of the, and I did too. Like I thought, Oh, 40 miles a day, I can do that. Or 45 miles a day, I can do that. And man, you get on that actual trail and you see the kind of things that people have to deal with. And especially through hiking, which is kind of your specialty, the skill required to do something like that for that long, the skill and mental fortitude and the focus, it blows me away. And I, I would have never known or really had any idea how much of a skill set that is until I had attempted it myself. It's definitely not for everybody. When I came off of the 400 miles of the Arizona Trail this year, I was like, you know what? I think that it's really cool that people can do all of it like you in one go. I was like, it is not for me. <laughs> I, I will stick to like the one, two, three, four, five day FKTs. Right. But I really do think like it's a very unusual skill set and you only get somebody coming along who shines at that, that many days of an FKT every once in a while. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool to understand in depth what it takes. Yeah. I think that the best way to understand something is to go out and just jump right in. And I, I think it's really been cool to see you attempt to jump right in the really long and then also, you know, more of your specialty, which are those one to 300, 400 mile efforts that are going to take you, you know, less than five days. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that I think it's great to be willing to push yourself and try new things, but also accept and learn like what it is that your strong suits are and to build on that for sure. Yeah. It was interesting when you asked me about the podcast, I thought it is like one of those things that as we get to know ourselves better over time, like I would have never, I think, been able to figure that out about myself in my 20s or even 30s. Uh, and I turned 40 last November. And I think I finally kind of understand what I really enjoy, you know, and the Tahoe Rim Trail, 170 miles. I'm like that, that I, I can push that amount and kind of feel the desire to do that FKT. But when I got out thinking like almost 20 days on the trail, that's a different level of commitment to a goal. Yeah, that is not something I think I'm quite ready in terms of a record, you know, right. uh, to take on. Yeah, but it's it's definitely impressive that people like you can go out and do that. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today and talking about all of these wonderful topics. You're very insightful and I really appreciate you sharing with us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you thinking of me and having me on. Thanks, Candice, for coming on the show. You can check out all of her FKTs on the website, fastestknowntime.com. You can also follow Candice on social media at RunCandiceRun. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, this is Heather on the FKT Podcast.